All right, tonight we're going to do the next of our studies here in the person, uh, work, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you want to join me in the book of Acts chapter 1, tonight as we mentioned, we want to look specifically at the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and his ministry among uh, the body of Christ corporately, uh, among uh, the saints collectively will talk afterwards about the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer individually after this. And we'll see if we can cover this in one session. If not, we'll uh, maybe uh, take a second stab, a part two at it if we don't uh, get everything in this evening. But we're going to move around quite a bit. So again, these are studies as we're kind of in a little more of a topical nature. It's good sometimes maybe if you're a note taker to jot things uh, down maybe scripture references we'll be moving around a little bit more than what we typically do but uh, in relation to what we want to look at I just want to set before you as a reminder the the five word statement that Jesus made which is very essential in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 where Jesus there declared or we could say he promised even more than that those words I will build my church and so important to realize the first time the word church shows up in the scripture it shows up on the lips of jesus jesus is the first one to use that word we find it there in matthew's gospel and we learn certainly from even that passage there in matthew chapter 16 a few things uh, in regards to the church uh, specifically clearly that jesus himself uh, is the the owner and the authority over the church he calls it my church uh, and the church belongs to jesus uh, jesus gave birth to the church uh, it belongs to him. He is the head of the church. We know the Bible teaches us that, and he has authority over its existence. And he also promises there, I will be the one to build, he says, my church. It's my church, and therefore, the responsibility to build the church, biblically, really, is not the responsibility of Christians, it's not the responsibility of a ministry, uh, of a pastor, the responsibility of building the church really scripturally falls upon Jesus because he said that he would do it and therefore uh, in essence uh, we, we should desire and long for him to be the one to do it. We may make an effort uh, to try and build the Lord's church but sometimes then we can almost get ourselves into things that we shouldn't. Uh, because maybe the Lord is building in a different way or a different pace than, than what we would humanly, and uh, certainly we are co-laborers together with him. But we want to realize that he is the one who has promised to build his church because it belongs to him. Now, uh, tonight what we want to talk about, in a sense, understanding that Jesus has assured he would build his church, is the process whereby he would accomplish that work. How does he specifically accomplish that? Again, we have to remember that when Jesus was physically present on the earth, in the flesh, that Jesus, while he was ministering on the earth, he directly led his followers. He directly guided his followers. He himself, as God in the flesh, taught his followers. He's the one who transformed lives. He's the one who uh, uh, protected the disciples. He provided for them when he had needs. Jesus was the one that performed the miracles. So when Jesus was present, everything happening among the believers happened through the person of Jesus. He was the one accomplishing it directly. And when Jesus left the earth, having 
died, resurrected, and then ascended back to the right hand of the Father, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus did not intend for his works and his ministry to stop uh, in a sense that it would not continue the things that he did while he was on the earth. Jesus still desires to teach his followers. Jesus still desires to minister to his followers. Jesus still desires to guide and provide leadership and to transform lives and to do all the things that he did when he was here in the flesh. What would happen after he ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven is that his ministry among his followers would simply just change in its operation in the sense that once Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, at that point, the Spirit of God, Jesus said, would then descend and would continue the ministry of Jesus upon this earth. The Holy Spirit would basically carry on what Jesus himself started. In fact, Jesus makes some allusions to this in John chapters 14 through 16, John 14, 25 and 26. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you while being present. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance the things that I said to you. So again, Jesus, when you leave, who's going to teach us? Well, I'm still going to teach you. But he said, now it will be the Holy Spirit, the helper, who me and the Father will send to you that will continue to teach in the same way that I did when I was present. Again, John 15:26 kind of gives that same idea. And then in John 16, again, Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. And whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you of things to come. So again, in the same way Jesus guided the disciples, now the Holy Spirit would provide guidance. In the same way that Jesus spoke and taught, he was saying the Holy Spirit will do the same. And again, we have to remember, God once for all established Jesus as the head of the church. The Bible tells us that. And that headship of Jesus over the church has not changed. He is still the head of the church. He's still providing guidance and direction in the ministry affairs. However, he would now accomplish that through the agency of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look with me here in Acts chapter 1. This is the, the point I want to bring to your attention as we look at these things together. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 Tell us this, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began, circle that word, began, both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after, circle that word, he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So as Luke's given this writing here to Theophilus, he says, Theophilus, again, Luke wrote the gospel of, of Luke, and that was the first book he wrote to this man, Theophilus. And now he records the book of Acts, which many call the Acts of the Apostles. It probably should better be stated the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit carried on the ministry, the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit carried on that ministry of Jesus after he ascended back into heaven after his resurrection. Take notice of what Luke is trying to say here. Verse 1, he says, The first account I wrote to you, my gospel, he says, Theophilus, the same guy he was writing to, he says, In the gospel of Luke, I told you all Jesus, notice, began to do and to teach. Again, he says, 
Jesus began to do things, but Jesus hasn't stopped doing things. Jesus began teaching, but Jesus hasn't stopped teaching. Uh, he's not physically present in a body of flesh anymore as he was for those three and a half years of ministry when he was literally doing things bodily and teaching in his literal physical presence. He says that was what Jesus began to do and to teach, but after he was taken up, he now, notice, does the same thing through the Holy Spirit. So again, the Bible wants us to see that the same things that Jesus was doing and teaching, Jesus is still doing things, and Jesus is still teaching, but now he does it through the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and among his followers and in the church. And, and I'll tell you, one thing that we cannot deny as we study the book of Acts and look at the early church is the power and the successfulness of the early church in the gospel ministry. When you look at the operations of the early church, God's original design was the Holy Spirit working together in unison with God the Son who had ascended back to the right hand of the Father. When you look at that, that perfect conjunction of the two persons of the Godhead working together, you see Jesus guiding the affairs of the church, doing and teaching things through the person and power of the Holy Spirit's ministry among the church, and it becomes very evident that the early church was extremely potent in its effects to spread the gospel, to see lives and communities transformed, to see people come to Christ, to see the church healthy in some senses. And I say that to say that it would be very wise for us to aspire towards both, number one, acknowledging that Jesus still is and must always be the head of the church, and at the same time, recognizing that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to lead the church and to allow the Holy Spirit to be the one still doing and teaching things that Jesus desires among his church, because that was God's original design. We see that here from the very beginning of the book of Acts. And what I want to talk to you about in relation to that is some of the specific works of the Holy Spirit in the church. And again, if you're a note taker, the first thing I want to draw to your attention is that the Holy Spirit directs the affairs or the operations of the church. The Holy Spirit directs the affairs or the operations of the church. And he does that in a couple of ways. First of all, in its ministry and its outreach. He directs the church's affairs in its ministry and its outreach. Look down just to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We begin to see indications of this. Jesus says to them, Acts 1, 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And notice the result. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here we see Jesus saying at the outpouring and baptism of the Holy Spirit, the result would be, take notice, an empowerment spiritually, a boldness for evangelism in sort of a ripple effect. He says, you shall, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon your life, he says, you shall then become witnesses to me in Jerusalem. That was their, their local city there. 
and then Judea, which was sort of the, the region that they lived in, the southern region of Israel, and then Samaria, which was sort of the, the next step outward if you had sort of a ripple effect going, and he says ultimately to the ends of the earth. So you picture like tossing a pebble into a, a pond of water and how the ripple effect goes out, and Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the result of that will be a desire for evangelism and a boldness in evangelism that will begin whereby the place where God has planted you right there in that local uh, city, in a sense, your Jerusalem, whatever our Jerusalem becomes as a believer or, or as a church, what our Jerusalem becomes, the place where the Lord plants us, that in that spot that we begin to saturate that city and then you saturate the surrounding communities and then we saturate the county and from there it begins to spread outwards and Jesus said this will be the result of that. Acts chapter 4, we find as well a spot where they're threatened to no longer teach in the name of Jesus and in Acts 4.31 it tells us that after being threatened that the church assembled and prayed together because of the threats against them for preaching the gospel and it says that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Listen, and it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So as a result of the church coming together, having a prayer meeting, seeking the Lord as they're spending time together in prayer as Christians... It says that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result of that prayer meeting and becoming filled with the Holy Spirit, it says that the word of God then began to be spoken with boldness. In other words, those who were in that meeting, who were then filled with the Holy Spirit, went out afterwards and began to have a burden and a boldness to begin to evangelize their communities. They went into their neighborhoods, and they went back to their jobs, and their school systems, and the places where they were, and they just began began to tell people about the word of God as the spirit was directing them to do that. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 10 and 11 is certainly one example that we have sort of a lengthier section and again we, we certainly can't cover all the verses here I have to summarize somewhat but to give you some illustrations Acts 10 and 11 give us an example of the Holy Spirit guiding how the church would minister and guiding Christians and the church where they were to minister and even to whom they were specifically to minister to. Uh, again, Acts chapter 10 reminds us of this story that takes place uh, with Peter. And remember, the early church and the first converts was basically all exclusively Jewish. And really, to those who were Jewish, who had come to Christ as their Messiah, it was a foreign concept for them that God would actually want to save Gentile people. Uh, the, the initial church was all Jewish people who had just embraced Jesus Christ as Messiah. And that was the case at this point here still in Acts chapter 10. It was exclusively Jewish. Yet God always had intentions of bringing the Gentile people into the fold of God and always intended to ultimately bring the gospel to the Gentile people as well to reach them. So at Acts chapter 10 here, you have Peter at the house of a man named Simon the Tanner. And it tells us that as Peter is there, he becomes hungry around the noontime hour. He goes up onto the rooftop area of the house there at Simon the Tanner. And Peter, it says, as he's spending time in prayer there around the noontime hour, 
in the midst of a time in prayer, Peter gets a vision. And remember, the Lord lets down this sheet with all these four-footed animals, these unclean animals on it. And the Lord speaks to him in this vision and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And when Peter hears the Lord saying to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat, Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. I am a kosher, strict Jewish man. I, not so. I would never do something like that. I, I, you know, I, I can't do such a thing. To which Jesus said to Peter, Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And it tells us that this was repeated to Peter, this vision, three times. In other words, God was trying to indicate, Peter, look, I understand what your mental uh, process is telling you, but I'm telling you I'm trying to do something here and you need to be open to it. Peter, you may not understand this logically. What I'm telling you to do may not make sense rationally. But Peter, I have something on my heart that I want to do. Of course, we know this is all a picture of God wanting Peter to bring the gospel eventually to the Gentiles. And God's giving him a vision. And he's saying, listen, Peter, just be compliant. I'm doing something here. There's something that I have intended. You may not understand it, but I'm in this. And Peter, as he's trying to ponder what this vision meant, while he's trying to figure it out, what does this vision mean? What's God trying to say? It tells us that a group of men, Gentile men, came from a man named Cornelius' house at that point. Look with me in Acts 10, verse 17. It says, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision he had seen meant, what, what did this mean? Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius' house made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there at that house. And while Peter thought about the vision, look at verse 19, the spirit said to Peter, behold, Peter, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So as Peter's trying to figure out what this vision God's given to him means, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and he says, Peter, listen, three men are seeking you. I've sent them. I'm in this. I'm connecting the dots here. I'm working on one end and I'm also working in your life to join together a ministry that I want to accomplish to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So Peter, he says, trust me, don't doubt just believe, go with them. And that would be a very questionable thing for Peter to go with Gentiles to a Gentile's house. But the Holy Spirit notices guiding Peter. So Peter complies. He arrives at Cornelius' house. And when he gets at Cornelius, this Gentile man's house, he asks, uh, what did you send for me for? I'm Jewish. You're Gentile. We don't do this. Why would you ask me to come to your house, and he's trying to process all this, Cornelius explains to him, listen, God spoke to me too, and God told us that we were to send for you and that you would speak to us the things that God has commanded for us. Look down in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. It tells us that Peter, upon hearing that God had told him to come to this house, opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And then at that point, Peter then preaches the gospel. He connects the dots. Okay, God wants the Gentiles to hear the gospel. He then shares the gospel message down in verse 44. Pick it up with me there. 
it tells us that while Peter was still speaking, watch what happens, while he's still speaking the word of God, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. I just love the way that that reads. <laughs> what to God that that would happen more in the church nowadays. As Peter is just speaking the word of God, the Spirit of God just falls upon everybody in the room that's hearing the Word of God. The Spirit fell upon those who heard the Word. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, who believed were astonished. What's going on here? As many who had come with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, notice, on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered and said, uh, can anybody forbid water that these two should not be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we Jews have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they asked him to stay a few days. Continue with me in chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea, the Jewish church back in Jerusalem, heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Uh-oh, what's Peter doing out there? Preaching to Gentiles. Doesn't he know that good Jewish people don't talk to Gentiles? Who's he? What's he doing starting an outreach to the Gentiles? Those pagan people. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, look what it says, verse 2. They contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and you ate with them? And Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. So Peter recounts what happens. Look with me finally in 11 verse 12. Here's what Peter says. Peter says to them as he's giving explanation, The Spirit told me to go with them doubting nothing. And moreover, these six brethren who accompanied me that were accountable, we entered and went to this man's house. But notice, notice Peter's word there, verse 12. Peter says, why did I outreach to these people? Why did I specifically go minister to these people? Peter says, for one simple reason. Because the Spirit told me to go minister to those people. The Spirit of God told me, Peter, this is the people that you are to go minister to. That is the group that you're to go share the Word of God with. I just point that out because I want you to see, again, this dynamic of the Spirit guiding how to minister. The Spirit guiding where to minister, to whom to minister. Peter, please notice, gang, this is the early church. Peter was not following a ministry program, okay? He didn't go to churchgrowth.com and find a great ministry program or go to some conference, church growth conference. Okay, what's the, what's the newest program that we're going to run now to build the church of God and to, you know, to, to – Peter didn't do any of that. Peter didn't do a demographic study, okay? He didn't do a demographic study of the neighborhood that Cornelius lived in and say, oh, you know, that community, because of the number of people that are this race or that socioeconomic status or that age. And, and if we go in there and, and that, hey, that, having studied out, that would be the best community to really get some big hopping thing. Peter didn't know nothing of that. Peter went to the area he went. He went to the people that he went. And he did what he did for one very simple reason. Peter says, the Spirit told me to go minister to those people. And again, I think that it's so important to realize to see the leading and directing of the activity of the early church. The Holy Spirit was telling them to whom they were to minister to. 
The Holy Spirit was showing them where they were supposed to minister geographically and when they should minister to what group and to what people. And I don't think God's changed. I think in the purest form that that's still what God intends, that the Holy Spirit would direct God's people, that the Holy Spirit would direct the church and say, I want you to minister in that community because that's the community I picked, where I want you to minister to those people. I want you to start an outreach with that group because that's where the Spirit is telling us to go. And I think it's just a beautiful illustration of that. Look with me over in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. You kind of see another example of this with Paul the Apostle's ministry. Acts chapter 16, down in verse 6, says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, this is Paul's missionary journeys, notice, Acts 16, 6, it says, They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, again, look at this passage here. It says in verse 6 and 7 that Paul the Apostle, again, he was moving around the different territories, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and we're actually told there in verse 6 that the Holy Spirit was the one who was forbidding Paul from preaching the word in Asia. Now, I have to tell you, the first time I kind of came upon that, reading my Bible as a Christian... I almost felt like that that was contradictory. Wait a minute. Why would, why would the Spirit of God forbid Paul the Apostle to preach the gospel? I mean, didn't Jesus say, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, make disciples of all nations? It almost sounds contradictory. Why would the Holy Spirit forbid Paul from preaching the gospel? Uh, but yet we see this balance of that is, yes, we are called to preach the gospel to all nations, but the Spirit of God also is the one who directs when and where and how we are to reach the world in the different times and seasons and places for the purposes that God and his sovereignty understands. That, hey, this group is ready to receive the gospel, or this community is maybe not ready yet, or this person's heart is ripe now, and this person's heart is not ripe yet. And the Holy Spirit, it says, actually forbid Paul and close two doors. Now, how did he do that? Was it circumstantial? Uh, was it uh, something that it was a change of heart in Paul the Apostle's heart? We're not told. The bottom line is we see the Holy Spirit forbidding and not permitting Paul to go into two different areas. But I love Paul's approach in ministries. Paul tried to move into a particular area. The Spirit of God closed the door. Paul said, okay, well, I guess that's not what the Lord's leading to do. So then he tried to go into another area and... Again, the Spirit of God didn't seem to permit it, so he said, okay, well, so he just kept seeking the Lord, and eventually, uh, says Paul received a vision from the man of Macedonia, come over here and help us, and Paul said, that's it, that's why the Lord closed this door, that's why the Lord closed this door, and this is the open door, because this is the door the Spirit of God is opening in front of us, and I think that the Holy Spirit does and desires to do the same thing in our lives today, and that we need to be sensitive to that. 
that if we try and move in an area and it seems that the Lord's kind of closing the door and putting the brakes on, we need to be sensitive to that. Again, why wasn't Paul supposed to go to Asia at that point? Again, maybe Paul wasn't ready to go to Asia yet. Maybe Paul just wasn't ready for the ministry that God had for him in Asia yet. Or maybe, on the other side of that, maybe Asia wasn't ready for Paul yet. Maybe it was both. Maybe Paul wasn't ready for Asia and the ministry God had there, and maybe Asia wasn't ready for Paul to come yet. Because the interesting thing is, when you study your Bible, you see that later on, guess what Paul does? He eventually goes to Asia, and he eventually preaches the gospel there. But it was in God's timing. You know, I find this extremely pertinent because I can tell you my personal experience has been exactly that. You know, over 15 years ago, before we ever went out to York, Pennsylvania, I had a heart and burden to do ministry down in this area and living in the Vineland area and was trying to knock on doors in this area to see if the Lord might open the door for a Bible study. And I was convinced over 15 years, Lord, I sent you for this in my heart, and, and the door was closed, and I just could not understand, Lord, why, why are you doing this? Why would you Why would you not open a door? seems so clear. I have such a burden for this. Again, we're going back over 15 years ago. And and, and the Lord ultimately closed that door, and, and not too long after I resolved, okay, it doesn't seem the Lord is allowing me to do this, was when the doors opened circumstantially when one of the pastors from Calvary Chapel of Delta, about an hour away from where we planted the church in York and pastored the church at, a pastor from Calvary Chapel of Delta, Pennsylvania, in essence, almost like what this man in Macedonia says, says here, said, look, I have two, three people that drive an hour to come down to church here on a Sunday morning. We would love to see something get started up there in the York area, but we don't feel like we have a guy in our fellowship right now that's ready for that. I don't feel like I have somebody that's ready to go out and church plant, uh, but your pastor said that they're just looking where to kick you out to, and they haven't found a place for you yet, so come over here and help us. That was in essence, what, come over, would you be interested in coming here and starting a Bible study and seeing what the Lord did? And the Lord did this exact thing, closed door, closed door, open door, uh, and I think the Lord does the same, and we have to be sensitive to that. Again, letting the Holy Spirit direct us as a church in regards to where we minister and when we minister, being sensitive of the Spirit's closing the door that we put the brakes on. And we say, hey, it seems like the Lord's putting the brakes on us. Not strive forward just because we have a ton of enthusiasm. Sometimes it's a timing thing. Maybe God says, look, I want you to minister here first. And, and, and so we need to be patient and sensitive to these kind of things. And we see the Spirit of God was directing Paul. And, and I think the same is exactly what he intends to do for us in ministry and outreach efforts as we seek to serve the Lord as a church body as well. Again, we look in other places like Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, remember, the Holy Spirit takes him and he sends him out to the middle of a desert. And then he said, and it says, the spirit said to him, Philip, go overtake that chariot. Again, the spirit spoke to Philip and he says, go over and talk to that guy. And again, I, I, not just on a large scale ministry level, there may be times where the Holy Spirit says to you, listen, I want you to go minister to that person over there in the group. And he may identify one person. Again, the Holy Spirit desires to guide us and to direct us. You see the same in Acts 18 and Acts 20 as well, same kind of things. Go with me back to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, and you see this same kind of picture here as well. Acts 13, here we have the church of Antioch. 
It says, now in the church that was at Antioch, notice there were certain prophets and teachers, and then it lists their names, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, who had brought up with terror the Hetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul the Apostle. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out, notice, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John with them as their assistant. So again, we see the same thing playing out here, where, notice, the Holy Spirit had a work that he wanted to accomplish. The Spirit of God knows the will of God, and he knows where God wants to outreach. He knows where God wants the gospel preached. He knows where God wants a new church planted. The Holy Spirit understands and knows the will of God, and as they're assembled together in, it seems, fasting and prayer, just spending time in God's presence, waiting on the Lord, seeking God in a spiritual atmosphere, it says, verse 2, as they ministered notice, to the Lord, as they're ministering to the Lord, just being in God's presence, worshiping and praying, it says that was when the Holy Spirit spoke and said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul, notice, for the work to which I've called them. It was a work that the Holy Spirit wanted to do, and he was just looking to identify two vessels through which he could accomplish that work. And again, we have this same picture here. And then when they go out, it tells us there in verse 4, they were sent out, notice, by the Holy Spirit. And that's very important. Again, it was the Spirit of God ordaining them for the work and the Spirit of God sending them out to launch them into the work that he ultimately wanted to accomplish. And again, this, we should be looking for the Holy Spirit to do the same thing today. It should be the Holy Spirit that we're looking to, 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 that there are things on God's heart and we need to become sensitive. Hey, what is on the heart of God? What work is the Spirit of God wanting to do? Where is the Spirit of God wanting to move? Where is he wanting to reach? What's he wanting to accomplish? And we should be praying and seeking and wanting to know the mind of the Lord and the heart of God and to hear the Spirit of God communicate to us exactly what it is that he desires to accomplish. Now, as we're here in Acts chapter 13, I would point out to you another way in which as well that the Holy Spirit directs the church because it's seen right here in this same passage of scripture we're looking at. Another way the Holy Spirit directs the church is secondarily in the choosing of its leaders and its workmen. The Holy Spirit directs the church in that he is the one who chooses its leaders and his workers. It tells us that as that group of prophets and teachers were gathered together ministering to the Lord, that the Holy Spirit said, notice, separate out of that group, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then they laid hands on them, the two the Holy Spirit identified, and sent them away. So notice, as the Holy Spirit had something that he wanted to do, a work that he wanted to accomplish, the Holy Spirit also took to himself the divine prerogative to say, there's a work I want to do and I'm also going to determine the workmen that I choose to do that work with. And when you see the picture of the early church here, please notice in regarding to 
those who were serving and workers and, and leadership and so forth. Please notice that there's nobody here submitting resumes, okay, with their qualifications. When they're in the early church, there's no elections and trying to get nominated for seats on some committees or church votes. There's nobody nominating, hey, who looks like the most qualified individual around here? We, we have a heart to do some outreach. We want to send somebody out to go do some missionary work or plant a church. Uh, you know, who seems to be the most qualified? Or, or uh, you know, Well, I'll tell you the truth, who's actually put in the most years? I mean, who's the next person in line with seniority for the uh, – if we're going to really appoint somebody or elevate somebody, who's got the most years in among the local fellowship here? Who's next in line in seniority <laughs> for the next spiritual position or leadership role. The Bible knows nothing of that. Nothing of that. What you have is people seeking the mind and the heart of the Lord in a spiritual setting, and the Spirit of God speaks and says, that guy and that guy. Now, we could sit here and try and speculate, well, why that guy and why that guy? Let me give you the simple reason. God said so. God said so. That's the important thing. And that's the thing that we want to be sensitive. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God knows the reasons. And God knows the dynamics. And God knows how to do things in a way that are most profitable. So the Spirit of God identifies the person that God chooses and the right one. And all they did was just discern what the Holy Spirit already decided. And that should be how the church recognizes Leadership. It should be discovering and discerning who has God by his spirit selected and ordained. Not, hey, God, we picked this one. Would you anoint him? No, no, no. God, this one's got the most seniority. This one's the most skilled or experienced. No, God, who have you chosen? Identify who you've selected, and we just recognize and accept and ratify that. The question becomes, how, how did the Holy Spirit say that? Well, I think it was very possible just through a word of prophecy. Notice verse 1 tells us that there were prophets among that group that were praying. So it's very possible there was a prophetic word that was given, and that was how they knew. Again, we see the same thing in Acts 20 where Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. It says that Paul speaking to the elders there said this, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Again, we see in the book of Acts and in the New Testament that people do not appoint themselves to spiritual leadership. It tells us here, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has to ordain someone to be an elder, to be a pastor, to, you know, to have some role of leadership. And, I, and I'll tell you something. I think that that is the safest and smartest way to have people functioning in ministry roles, is just to recognize what the Holy Spirit has already done in someone's lives. When we recognize or ratify someone as a spiritual leader, all we should really be doing is just ratifying outwardly what we've already discerned the Holy Spirit has done. It's evident the Holy Spirit's made this person an overseer, and we just acknowledge that maybe through prayer or the laying on of hands to publicly recognize what the Holy Spirit has done. And I'll go further to say this. Look, not just among those who are, let's say, the you know elders in a church or pastors— I want everybody who's serving in any capacity to be the person that the Holy Spirit has said separate to me, Paul and Barnabas, or you know, or you know, you know, 
Pat and Sally or whoever to, to be the ushers at the front door. I want the person at the front door handing out bulletins being the person that the Holy Spirit has said, you know what, that is the best person to hand out bulletins at the front door to lovingly greet people and be sent. I want the Holy Spirit to say this person and this person and this person should be ministering to our children because they are the right ones to minister to our children. This person and this person should be leading the musical portion of worship in the body of Christ because that's who the Holy Spirit has ordained because that's when fruitful ministry and effective ministry really begins to happen. Go with me over to Acts chapter 15. We see another way in which the Holy Spirit directs the church, and that is in Acts 15 in regards to the church making its decisions. The Holy Spirit directs the church in regards to the making of decisions among the church. In Acts 15, again, it's a lengthy chapter which records the the church, uh, basically kind of the first church council that comes together to address an issue or a situation uh, in the body of Christ that arose. In that particular day, Acts 15, verse 1 to 5, describes how basically there were a group of people who were questioning that people could be saved by the gospel of grace alone, and people were trying to say, look, no, 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 these Gentile Christians, they have to observe circumcision and the customs of the law of Moses in order to be saved. They have to become Jews first, then they become Christians, and Paul refuted this with incredible passion. Look, you're questioning the gospel of grace. You, you can't do this. So there was this major issue. It wasn't a small matter. It was a major matter in the early church, a decision that needed to be made in regards to church doctrine and church direction. It was a vital, important decision. So you have kind of this first major decision that the early church needs to make, and you follow the pattern of how they resolve and make the decisions that they do within the early church. And basically it flows out in the sense that the leadership of the church comes together to consider the matter and to address its revolution, uh, resolution. Look down in verse 6. It says the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Notice, they didn't set up a ballot box. They didn't have a church meeting with an open mic and say, please feel free to step to the mic and everybody give your opinion. That's not how they did things. When the Spirit of God was directing the church, it says, verse 6, when an issue arose, something that needed to be decided upon for the church, the apostles and the elders, they came together to consider the matter as overseers, God ordained overseers. The Holy Spirit made them the overseers. That was their job, to oversee the affairs and the life and ministry of the church. So they come together, and when you follow down from verse 7 through around verse 22, it then describes the apostles and the elders sort of counseling and consulting together, and two things happen. You see them giving explanations from the Word of God, as their basis, so that was the basis for their decision-making, they discussed what the Word of God said, and they said, look, here's the standard we should use to make our decision, this book. What are the principles of the Word of God? What is the basis of what the Bible says? And they use the Word of God as their, their sounding board and the Word of God as their measuring line for the decisions that they made on behalf of the church. Very wise. And the second thing you see happen in those section of verses is the exercise of spiritual gifts because James speaks forth a word of wisdom. 
and as he speaks forth a word of wisdom, as the exercise of the spiritual gifts are in operation, ultimately an answer and an agreement to a proper decision was determined, and they discern what the Holy Spirit wants for the church. Look down in Acts chapter 15, verse 28 and 29. Here's their resolution. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And they tell the Gentiles, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So as they're writing this letter now to the Gentile people, after the leadership came together, prayed together, consulted, looked at what the word of God said, the exercise of spiritual gifts was in operation, a word of wisdom was given through James, and as these things take place, ultimately the culmination of the leadership's decision on behalf of the church, verse 28, they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What are they saying there? What they're saying is that as a group of church leaders, they discerned the decision of the Spirit of God because they had a mutual peace in their hearts of what the Spirit of God was telling them individually, and it, it met and it, it agreed together collectively. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, this is what the Holy Spirit was bearing witness to our hearts in agreement, and there was this mutual peace from the Spirit of God, which makes sense because if the same Holy Spirit was dwelling in James and Peter and Paul as leaders, as they were seeking God together and looking to the Word of God and letting the Holy Spirit make decisions on behalf of the church, all they really needed to do was have their antenna tuned in to the right frequency. Their antenna tuned into the frequency of the Holy Spirit's voice, and they would then hear, if the same Spirit was dwelling in each one of them, what the Spirit was bearing witness to in their hearts, and there was that mutual agreement, and they they discerned, hey, we all have a peace about the same thing the Spirit of God is saying to us, and that was the agreeing factor that made them then make that decision on behalf of the church. And I tell you, in, in the time that I have been a part of church leadership, I have always used that as a pattern for making decisions on behalf of the church. That whatever leadership God has brought around me, you know, whether elders or board members, the way that decisions are ultimately made is there must be a unified agreement and a mutual peace from the Holy Spirit between myself and the other men that God has brought alongside of me to serve in a leadership and an oversight capacity. And if that peace from the Lord is not there unanimously among the group that are praying and seeking the mind of the Lord together as overseers to make decisions, then we don't do anything. We don't move forward. Because I believe that if the Spirit of God has put people in a place of oversight to make decisions and the same Spirit dwells in each one, that ultimately there will be that mutual peace, that mutual agreement. And it's a healthy and it's a safe thing. And, and again, it may not happen immediately. Sometimes maybe it's a matter of the Lord. You know, I've had times and experiences where the Spirit of God put something on my heart and others who were a part of me you know, and the leadership I was a part of didn't quite have the same uh, you know, resonation in their heart of that at first. And sometimes it was just a matter of just waiting and waiting on the Lord and being patient enough to not have to be some maverick or some dictator to, well, we're going to do it anyway, whether you agree with me or not. I, I don't think that's necessary. 
I think you wait on the Lord and you pray because ultimately, if that's from the Lord, then he, he will put the same thing on the hearts of your elders and surrounding leadership that he's put around you. And in the same way, that works the other way. There have been times where I've had some bright and wonderful ideas. And as I prayed and consulted and counseled together with my fellow leadership where they said, uh, I don't know about that. And, 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 and you know what? On those occasions then it's wise because it then becomes a safeguard to me as a pastor and as a leader to recognize, you know what? If the Spirit of God's not bearing witness through the other people God's put around me, then maybe I shouldn't push into that. Maybe that's not from the Lord. Or maybe it's just not from the Lord right now because there's not that mutual peace from the Holy Spirit. And this is just a really wise pattern. We see it illustrated in the book of Acts. And I think it's something that should still be implemented even in today. Well, let's talk about one other thing, and we'll have to wrap up our time here. Another area that the Holy Spirit uh, ministers among the church is that he protects the church from hypocrisy and corruption. Uh, look with me back in Acts chapter 4, and we see this illustrated here. One other sort of ministry we can talk about before our, our time's up, I think. Acts 4. And again, the, the point we see here is that the Holy Spirit protects the church from hypocrisy and corruption. Another important ministry of the Holy Spirit to keep the church pure. Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they all had things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, having land, he as well sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this kind of lays the backdrop for us. The backdrop of a unique atmosphere that existed for a short period of time. It wasn't a prolonged thing in the early church, but when the early church really began to mushroom and everyone was hanging around the area in Jerusalem, what began to happen is that there were certain people who were in need, and we see what began to happen out of just genuine Christian love, a commonness of caring for one another, a koinonia that existed among them, those we read here who had wealth, those who had excess land and excess houses, they found themselves being burdened for others who were around them that were fellow brothers and sisters who had need. And in just a sincere motivation of the Holy Spirit, they began to say, wait, this, this is crazy. Why should we have three houses if somebody else doesn't have one? You know, why should we have all this land and acreage? And here's these people over here, they don't have anything. So those who had excess were basically just bringing their excess, selling off their excess, taking the money, bringing it to the apostles, the leaders in the early church, and saying, look, we know there's people who have need. And you guys know who in the church has need. So, hey, they're bringing the excess resources and saying, hey, use this and help out those in the church, maybe that are poor or impoverished. And so there'll be an equality among us. We don't need to have all this excess if others don't even have the basic necessities. So there's this wonderful, loving atmosphere among them. However... 
please take in consideration because people haven't changed much. As people were doing this and you know selling their house and bringing all the money to the apostles' feet at the church and saying, hey, use this money and help people in the church that are poor, no doubt as people did that, others walked on and thought, wow, that is really spiritual. I mean, that is really generous and loving. And such people who did such benevolent, generous things were well-respected. They had a sense of admiration. They were, wow, that's really spiritual and loving of a person to do that. Now, with that in your mind, look at Acts chapter 5. The story continues saying, A certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds. So he did the same thing pretended to give all the proceeds, but he actually kept back a portion of them, his wife being aware of it, and he brought a certain part and laid that at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? In other words, you didn't have to do this. And after it was sold, was it not in your control? The money belonged to you. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias, hearing these things, fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard those things. So Ananias and Sapphira, seeing this environment going on, seeing people coming and say, I, I sold my extra house that I didn't need, and here's all the proceeds. They watched us and thought, wow, man, those people are really looking. So they, having the ability to do the same, did that. However, we read here that they acted as if they gave all the proceeds, but really they selfishly were holding a good portion of it back. But they were doing what? Pretending in hypocrisy because they wanted to look more spiritual than what they truly, sincerely were, they were pretending to do the same thing everybody else was doing for one reason, image. Just image. They were trying to act more spiritual in the eyes of the people in the church than what they really were, but they were actually deceptively holding back some of the money. And Peter here, notice, getting a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit, says in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Again, the Spirit of God was not deceived, and he pointed out right away the hypocrisy that they were committing. Please understand here, the sin was not keeping money back. That was, that was not, that's not the sin here. People misconstrue this text all the time. The sin was spiritual hypocrisy. Peter said, you didn't have to do this. It was in your possession. Nobody, nobody was forcing anybody to do that. The sin that the Spirit of God actually strikes them dead for was deceptively acting in the way they were. It, in essence, was very simply spiritual hypocrisy. And so powerful was the presence of the Holy Spirit in the early church. So pure was the early church because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. People could not get away with hypocrisy among the body of Christ. The Spirit of God was so powerful preserving the purity of the early church that when there was hypocrisy or anything that weakened the body, look how severely the Holy Spirit dealt with it. You, you look at that and think to yourself, man, could you imagine if the power and presence of the purity of the Holy Spirit was that strong today? We might be losing people every Sunday morning. We have to hire a funeral director to take care of the church. 
and again, I, I, I point this out because today in, in the modern church, we have become so deluded and weakened in the area of holiness and purity. It is absolutely a travesty how much tolerance the present church has for unbiblical practices, for people who tolerate and accept and allow ungodly behavior and lifestyle and allowance for all types of ungodly, unbiblical, immoral things and spiritual hypocrisy and playing church and living a different way outside. And, and if the power and presence of the Holy Spirit were to operate in the same way today, oh my goodness. But that was how powerful the presence of the Holy Spirit was. So the Holy Spirit, not wanting that hypocrisy to defile the church, what does he do? He actually eliminates them. They, they lose their lives. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't go to heaven. It doesn't say they went to hell. But the Holy Spirit said, you know what? It's time for you to come home early. Because I won't let you pollute the body of Christ. I won't let your spiritual hypocrisy, a little leaven, the Bible says leavens the whole of, and the Spirit of God severely judges them for their spiritual hypocrisy. Again, I think it's vital for us to remember this, that the name God gives to his spirit is what? The Holy Spirit. Don't ever forget that first word. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the Spirit of God is protecting the church from what would corrupt it. To reveal what is ungodly and unhealthy. And at times, to remove from the church what is ungodly and unhealthy. And if that comes through a particular individual, God's house must maintain God's standards. And when you're in my home, you're a visitor. And so when you come to my home as a visitor you honor the standards of my home or you're not welcome in my home because it's my home. And in my home, you honor the standards of my home. And in God's house, God says, there are standards for my house. And you, when somebody visits the house of God, God says, no, I don't have to tolerate your standards. This is my house. And in my house, I have certain standards. And the part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the church is to protect it from corrupting influences and to lovingly, yes, to lovingly, but to strongly deal with sin at times in the lives of people. So you know what? Listen, when the ministry of the Holy Spirit is happening through a church in a healthy way, it's a good thing when the Holy Spirit exposes sin in our lives. It's a good thing when the Holy Spirit brings people to brokenness and conviction. If they were able to live a double life and the presence of the Holy Spirit is moving in such a way and they say, you know what? I can't do this anymore. Or when the Holy Spirit identifies something. And I tell you, if and when necessary, though it's difficult, the Spirit of God has also given us scripture at times to show us that there are occasions, even when necessary, to discipline someone in the body of Christ, according to what the scripture says, to protect the holiness and the purity of the church. And if there's an area today in the body of Christ, I think, where we have weakened and defaulted many times, I really start to think it's in that area that we somehow misconstrue love and tolerance in a way whereby we think to be loving it means that we should just tolerate everything. Should we love people? Yes, but we should love them in truth because the Holy Spirit wants to protect the church from those corrupting influences.